You're listening to episode 63 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children, where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Now today we have a Spotlight on Children's Author episode, and I love these episodes. It's all about chatting to authors, and it often means that you are taken on an adventure. And my special guest author today is Georgie Donahay, and she does exactly that. She shares her personal story and inspiration behind being an author and also shares an enormous amount of valuable information for parents, carers, educators, aspiring authors and published authors. She also does share some very exciting news too, so you will want to stay tuned in to discover what that's all about. Now remember that we do have show notes on the Chat About Children website and you can find those at chataboutchildren.com. I'd also like to take a very quick few moments to share with you the upcoming release of my third book, A Gift Book for Mums, Flourish for Mums, 21 Ways to Thrive with Self-Care and Acceptance. It's a book inspired by the thousands of mothers I have worked with over the decades and my own motherhood journey having three children in two and a half years. It creates a space for mothers to include themselves in their own circle of nurture while celebrating the children in their lives. You can pre-order it now and learn more at flourishformums.com. Okay, so let's get on to chatting to Georgie Donahay, our children's author. At eight years old, Georgie Donahay was bitten by a redback spider. That same year, she won her first writing competition. As a grown-up, that's if children's authors ever grow up, Georgie is an internationally published, award-winning author, wife and mother of three. Never knowing where inspiration will strike next, Georgie carries a notepad wherever she goes, and she even has a waterproof notepad stuck to her shower wall. Georgie is terrible at keeping secrets. Just ask the thousands of children around the country that she said has shared writing secrets with at her school visits. Georgie's obsessed with helping kids to bring their stories to life. She has structured a number of workshops and presentations designed to harness kids' imaginations and free their inner author. Georgie believes all emerging authors and illustrators should have a voice. So in 2011, she founded Creative Kids Tales. And through this industry-recognized resource, Georgie has guided many authors towards their first publication contracts. In December of 2019, Georgie also launched an exciting new direction for Creative Kids Tales, the Creative Kids Tales Speakers Agency. Georgie Donahay, welcome to Chat About Children. Thank you very much for having me, Sonia. It's wonderful to be here. It's very exciting to have you starring as our Spotlight on Children's Author episode. Now, Georgie, you just do so much work, amazing work, I have to say. Thank you. As an author, but also you do so much work for writers of all ages. So help us to get to know you a little better before you became a published children's author. What were you doing? It was kind of a blur. I think back when I was eight and I won that writing competition, I thought I'd made it. I thought that was it, the contracts, everything's well. I didn't actually think about contracts. I thought all the offers were going to roll in through the door. I didn't know anything about writing contracts or, you know, any of the, the stuff that goes on when we have books published today. I thought I'd made it. I thought that was it. 
So I took a bit of a break. I dabbled, I guess you might say, in writing over the years, not very serious about it. I didn't really get serious about it again until my son was born. He was a non-sleeper and I used to sit at the foot of his bed with my laptop and aim to type out about a thousand words a night. At the time I was writing an adult murder mystery and when he was old enough to read those stories too, I didn't think that was appropriate. So I made up things <laughs> around his bedroom that I could find. There was a noisy cricket that lived outside his bedroom. So made stories up about that. And I kind of found, I guess I refer to it as, you know, my comfy pair of slippers, the children's writing industry. And I just slipped straight into them and I haven't taken them off since. 20 years later, I'm still wearing the same slippers. No, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? No, I've changed my slippers, mean. but no. <laughs> we know what you mean. But I love that story. I love how it all came to be and the inspiration. So the non-sleeper in your son was really a blessing in disguise, Georgie. Oh, if you look back at the videos of me rocking him to sleep, you'd say otherwise with the eyes hanging out of my head. But no, <laughs> when I say non-sleeper, he was a non-sleeper. Like a lot of your audience would probably remember or know of Tresillion Possum Cottage. I spent a lot of time there. He didn't want to sleep. Like at Tresillion, I don't know, this was a long time ago. He's now 23-ish. <laughs> when they take the babies from you to give you that first night of sleep, they wrapped him up very tightly in the sheets to try and stop his arms and legs moving about because they were confident that that was what was keeping him awake, the movement all the time. But he kicked so hard wrapped in those sheets that he actually took the tops of his toes off <gasps> and Whoa. they had to bandage his feet and all the way up his legs and rewrap him. And he kicked so hard. He just bandages everything. He just, they, after, I think we were there for about four or five days and they could not break him. Oh. So I got used to the fact that he was a non-sleeper and he only started sleeping properly when he was a teenager. Oh, wow. God but he still has sleep issues. Wow. So I, there's videos of me rocking him back and forwards to the same songs that he was addicted to when he was a baby. And look, yes, it was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> it was because I did, as I said, I, I found my writing home. And prior to that, I was just, you know, everyday mum, working five days a week. I had my own chocolate business. I used to make chocolates. Yum. I used to, one time I was working for a charitable organization. So I was dressed, running around Martin Place dressed as a giant kidney bean. <laughs> I've done all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I've even swallowed a glow worm, which I'm sure has to go into a story somewhere. Yes, please. <laughs> Someone's going to nab that one. That's brilliant. I love that. Have you made up a story? And if you haven't, tell us the story about the redback spider incident. Like we started with that. How did you get bitten by a redback spider? Well, it's funny because I didn't actually bring this story into my writer introduction at schools until a few years ago. And it was a little boy in the audience who said to me, because when I go to the schools and, and or talk online or do courses, I like to mix fact and fiction because a lot of kids say, well, I don't have any stories. You know, I don't really have anything to say. And I say, of course you do. Take something that's happened in your life, even if it's the most boring thing, and, you know, put some fiction in there. Make up things, you know, add an astronaut, add a dinosaur, whatever you want to add to that story. It's yours. Make it your own. Do whatever you want to do with it. So the story about the spiders, I actually have a, still have spider phobia today from that experience. 
I was eight years old and it was a hot day. I think it was, must have been the school holidays. I think it was around January and I wanted to build a cubby house underneath my house where I was living. The house was a high on stilts. So I went downstairs. There was about 16 stairs between the back door and downstairs. And I decided to sweep underneath the house to get rid of dust. There was some broken pots and things around. So clearing all those away, I felt a sudden little pinch on my finger. And when I looked down, I saw a redback spider dangling off the terracotta pot. And I called out to mum and came bounding down the stairs. God bless her. She was a big lady. So if you kind of imagine that in a comical way, she saw the spider on the ground. And kids love that when I share that. And I also add a few more things, which I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> yep. She saw the spider on the ground. She jumped up and down on it and made it part of the cement and did not scoop it up or collect it in anything to take it to the hospital with me, which had she have done that, they would have let me go within a few minutes and I'll explain why. But she didn't do that. So I went to the hospital and mum told them that I'd been bitten by a redback spider and did you collect the spider? No, I didn't. It's still back at home, squished. So they put me into a room that was, they must have had a lot of patients that day. I can't, I can't remember. There must have been a lot of people in emergency. I was put into a small room on one side and it was behind a door. So I was kind of like, you know, sort of felt like I was wedged in the corner. On the wall beside me was rows and rows and jars and jars of petrified snakes and spiders and all the creepy, crawly, poisonous type of little critters that you can find. And I still to this day will swear on a stack of Bibles that every single creature in those jars was staring at me. So after I think it was about six hours observation, they discovered that I must have been bitten by a male redback, not a female, which had mum have taken the spider to the hospital, they would have been able to determine straight away, male redback spiders are not poisonous. So I was fine. Mm. But when I share that story with kids, I add a little bit more flavour to it. Dynamic. Talk about, you know, summertime and, you know, growing up in Sutherland Shire, there was red dust underneath the house from the terracotta pots. However, when I'm telling the kids the story at school and I get them to pick out fact and which bits of fiction, I add that my dad used to carve tombstones. <laughs> so, and instantly kids love, you know, kids love the dark and the, the bit of scary and, you know, the, those sorts of things. So there was a lot of red dust around from him carving the tombstones. And that's what I had to sweep away. And right then and there is where the kids sit and they fixate on that and my dad was a butcher. <laughs> so he didn't carve tombstones, but that's the bit of fiction that I throw in to the story. And they all actually think that the tombstones is fact and that the spider is fiction. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah. But, hey, they love that story. And it was a little boy who actually said to me, when I briefly mentioned that story, and I don't even know how it came up, and I said, you know, and I won my first writing competition that year and he's like wow you're like you know spider woman (laughs) I thought I am maybe I have magical powers maybe that's what it is I have to incorporate this story into my presentation so now that's where I begin and I have a big red back spider that crawls across my screen which gets all sorts of reactions from the kids in the audience. I'm sure it does. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I can actually picture and visualise all of that as you were describing it. So yeah. looking forward to the book on that one, Georgie. 
Well, yeah, if I write a book about spiders, I think the only problem is I won't be able to turn the pages because I don't like looking at them. <laughs> Could be a desensitisation project. You never know. Oh, well, I actually am working on a spider story, but it's a bit different from my spider story. I think it's going to be fun for the kids and very interesting. And I don't know that there's one out there like it. So Ooh, okay. stay tuned for that. Nice. All right. All right. We'll have to hold our hats for that one. So what led you then to the concept and the idea of creative kids tales? Because it's turning 10 this year. Yes, 2021, 10 years old, creative kids tales. I've been in the industry for around 20 years, dabbling away at different things. And I actually ran a local CBCA branch in the Sutherland Shire. I ran for a few years. And at that time, when the president served, they could only serve two terms and then they had to step down. I served my two terms and when it came time to stepping down, nobody else wanted to fill the shoes because, as you can imagine, there's a lot of work involved in running a CBCA branch. So I thought about doing something a little different. I wanted to give this, while the CBCA was great, I felt that there was a few limitations that I wanted to knock down. So I thought I'm going to start a little website where I can help promote children's authors and children's illustrators, that sort of came later on. It was more author-focused. I want to help promote people. I want to help people, you know, knock down those doors of publishers and get published. Because I always tell people, if you can't go through the front door, go through the back door or open a window, there's always a way in. Yep. So my little website idea is now almost 10. We're an industry-recognised site. We have published about 100 children's authors and illustrators through the anthologies that we've done. We provide services like manuscript assessments, author personal training. We're redoing our website. We are new logo, new services. There'll be the Creative Kids Tales or the CKT Writing Academy. There will be the CKT Writers Hub. It will be the speakers agency, obviously, but we will also be launching as a publisher. Yay! CKT Publishing. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. That is just an amazing achievement and accomplishment. Well done, Georgie. Thank you very much. And of course, we've got the big festival, Everything Crossed, we can get together in June at the Cronulla RSL face-to-face to have the Writers' Festival. Ursula Dubasarski, current Children's Laureate, Andy Griffiths, Tina Harris, some of your audience might know Tina yeah. Harris, Lala, she'll be joining us as well. Wendy Orr, who wrote the Nims Island series will be there. Adam Wallace, the New York Times bestselling author, will also be there. It's going to be huge. It's going to be a massive celebration. So whether it's in person or online, it's all happening this coming June, isn't it? It's not that far away. No, I'm going to be there. I'm looking forward to it. I am looking forward to it. So tell us a little bit more about how writing was a part of your life. I mean, you've told us like the eight-year-old kind of spider incident, etc. But then what was going on in your life? How was writing part of your life then led you to your first publication? Tell us a little bit more about that and what it meant for you to be a published author. Well, from Creative Kids Tales, the author shelf was born. I did that radio show for about 12 months. Talked to a lot of people within the industry, Jackie French, Andy Griffiths, Posey Graham Evans, who wrote The High Five, created High Five, and McLeod's Daughters. She was a guest as well. Dave Pilkey, who is Captain Underpants. He was wonderful to speak to. It was so good to be able to interview those people. 
And I did that for about a year. And with everything that I was doing, my writing was taking a little bit of a back seat. So I put the author shelf on the shelf um, <laughs> yep. and decided it's, I really need to get stuck into my writing and getting submitted to publishers. Within a month of ending the author shelf, I had my first contract, and which was wonderful. But that book, that story doesn't really have, I didn't set out to write that story. I tell people, and some people look at me a bit strangely when I say this, my characters talk to me. They tell me their story. I don't come up with their story. They've already got the story and they tell me. So I was sitting at my daughter's playground waiting to talk to her. She was in year two at the time, her class about children's authors and writing. And this little paragraph popped into my head. Polar bear's life is quite cosy and nice with mountains of fish and even more ice, but something was missing. wasn't quite right. She dreamed of the stage. She yearned for the lights. That was it. I madly typed it out on the iPad, went and did my thing for the class, went home and thought, hmm, there's something here. I'm not sure what. I feel really uncomfortable writing in rhyme. It doesn't sit well with me. And I know my editor that I work with as well, she doesn't like it when I write in rhyme because rhyme is very restrictive. She thinks there is more of the story to be told. So I try not to write in rhyme, but this would not go away. So I kept hammering away at it, got it out there and went through a few, you know, manuscript assessment services and things like that. Got some help on the rhyme and it was picked up and that publisher sadly is no longer around but it was then picked up by Wombat Books and Lulu my first picture book has done wonderful things she's on Kindling Kids Radio she's a Kindergo app she's also on the Qantas and Virgin Inflight entertainment channels it's a really fun rhyming story about a polar bear who wants to sing and dance for a bigger audience other than just at home on the ice and she goes and chases her dreams. It's a gorgeous story. I love it. Thank you. I love Thank it. You. My kids are lucky to have a signed copy from you. Yeah, I love signed author copies. Authors and illustrators are my rock stars. They really are. Totally. It's a gorgeous story. And that's Lulu. And yeah, and also, do you sometimes wear a tutu when you do? Who's no. It? Who wears Never a tutu? Wear a tutu. <laughs> Never wear a tutu. The hips are too big for the tutu. No, I actually take them into the schools and believe it or not, most of the boys love wearing the tutus. Yeah. I have polar bear headbands and I try and I've got about six polar bear headbands and six tutus and I just put it in the teacher's hands to pick out the people who are going to dress up and away they go. But the year six boys love dressing up in tutus. Awesome. Love it. No doubt. It's a lot of fun. So On that topic of working with kids, you run a lot of workshops for kids and often they're in the school holidays for obvious reasons. Yes. So are you finding that you mostly have kids come along who are established bookworms and writing enthusiasts or are you also getting, you know, quite a few reluctant writers that, you know, perhaps mum or dad are kind of, come on, let's get you writing, come to this workshop. What's the go? What's the uptake? And then how do you balance those dynamics? It's interesting you should say that because I do get a mixture of kids that come into these classes. And I, funnily enough, when I run them in school holidays, I actually find there have been a couple of parents who've slipped in the kids because of inexpensive babysitting exercise. <laughs> so, I, so those kids don't want to be there. 
Yeah. And as I tell parents, if kids don't like reading, it's because they haven't found a book, that they haven't found their adventure that they need to fall into. Same with writing. And that's why I do the, the fact and fiction. And, you know, I share with them a story about going to the corner shop to buy their favourite ice cream. And, you know, this ice cream is only on sale one day a year. And it's the only time that they can buy it. And I tell the story, I say that, you know, wake up one morning, go to the shop, buy an ice cream, ate the ice cream, went back home, everything good. And I say to the kids, how's that story? And they all sort of look at me. I say, was that a good story? Would you pick that book up again and read it? No, they wouldn't read it. So I say, okay, what about, you know, we set the scene. It was a cloudy morning. It'd been raining. There was thunder rumbling in the distance. And on the way to the shop, you know, you sneak out in the morning, depending on the age of the audience. If they're teenagers, that's okay because they can go to the shop. If they're younger, you know, mum or dad are trailing behind with the headphones in. So they're not really paying attention to what's going on with their child in front. And as they're walking towards the shop, they hear a noise in the bushes and they can see movement. They're not quite sure what's going on. As they get closer, you know, the rustling gets louder and they have to get to the shop. They're completely focused, but they don't want to walk down the footpath where there is something rustling in the bushes. As they get closer, all of a sudden out jumps this T-Rex who is on the way to the shop to buy that very same ice cream. Now, I tell the kids in the class, what happens next is up to you. So we've set the scene, but I build it up a little bit more. And the kids sit there and they have to think of, you know, is the T-Rex real? Is it a figment of their imagination? Is there going to be some chase? Is there going to be a fight? Are they going to share the ice cream? What's going to happen? It's completely in their hands. And that's one thing I reiterate to the kids all the time. They are in charge. It's their story. And teachers don't like it when I go into schools and say, hey, don't worry about punctuation and full stops and, <laughs> and commas and all those things. We're going to screw them up. We're going to throw them out right now. You're just going to write. And I like to do a non-dominant hand exercise with them before we start writing just to get them going. I generally show you some pictures on the screen. One will be this horrible scribble picture which is more likely what I'm going to draw if I had to draw a non-dominant hand. Mm -hmm. We start with a non-dominant hand. We put the pencil in the non-dominant hand. You know, you're going to draw this, going to draw that, get them all excited. And then just as they're about to draw, I'd say, right, last thing, close your eyes. So they can't <laughs> see what they're drawing. They're drawing with their non-dominant hand. And the laughter and the expressions that come from the kids is really good. And it's a good way to get them to, you know, shake off any nerves, relax and, if they muck things up, it doesn't matter because they're in charge. Wonderful. It is a lot of fun. It creates a safe space for them too, it obviously, because it's just, it's non-judgmental. There's not those strict rules you're putting in place and just lets them run free and wild, Absolutely. which is, you know, I think what a lot of kids and even adults crave for. So yeah, so they're brilliant workshops. Now for the parents listening out there who are kind of going, yeah, my child will do that for you, you know, and I get this, you know, that privilege of being the author or someone different to the everyday. And so we get that privilege often of, I guess, a child that will give us a go. All right, we'll give this a go. Right. But at home, it can be a really different story. Have you got any tips for parents and carers who at home, they might be experiencing that kind of different motivation level when it comes to their kids' writing? What are your thoughts? Creative writing for kids, I mean, that's what a lot of kids, when they come to the courses, the ones that are reluctant that come to the course that I do, 
it's because they see it as a chore. You know, oh, we do enough writing in school. Okay, that's great. This is not school and we're going to do some different things. And we're going to tap into some areas that, you know, we're going to tap into your, your library, your story library that you've got up here, you know, up in your mind, you've got hundreds, thousands of stories. And whether you think they are or not, they're entertaining. It's what you add to it. So my response to that would be kids might do things out in different settings and with different people, but I try to inspire them enough that they will take that back home. And we don't finish things in the class. They are assigned things to take home and it's up to them. As I said, they're in charge. If they want to finish it when they get home, they can. And if they don't, that's up to them. There should be no pressure. It's about being having fun and exploring adventures and, you know, having fun with the written word. The same with reading. Don't force kids into something just because you want it for your child. Allow them to find their little niche, the book that they love, an adventure they love. I have when parents say to me, you know, what's a good for this age? Well, kids read all sorts of different stories at different ages. Just because the book is written for a 10-year-old doesn't mean a 10-year-old should be reading it. You know, you might have a seven-year-old who wants to read it, or you might have a 13-year-old that wants to read it. As long as the content is reader-friendly, then I don't think you should restrict kids. I tell parents, take your kids to the library because it's a bit easier to you know, shop around in the library than, than when you're in bookstores. They don't really like you flicking through all the books continuously. Go to the library, have a look around, let your child go to the, the bookshelf and have a look. You know, let them go and pick it up, feel it, smell it. It's all different sensations and it's really important. I mean, Kindle and all those things are great, but you don't get the same feel, you don't get the same smell, you don't get the same emotions and things triggered when you're older about, you know, sitting down and reading those books. Let them sit on the floor in the library and read the books and find the ones that they like. Then go to the bookstore and buy them. I don't want to poo-poo bookstores, so go and buy them at the bookstores (laughs) then if you want, if your child must have and keep that book. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I love that. And that's something that I totally agree with and I also advise. And I think one of the big things there that you're also reinforcing, Georgie, is giving kids the choice Exactly. That's huge for kids. And then as a parent or carer, observing what they are drawn to naturally, it gives us insight into what interests them. And as you said, if it's outside of their scope to read it, it could be something that's read to them or shared with them or they read part of or whatever it might be. But if they're keen on it, I just say, hey, encourage it. You know, and it's really important that kids find the book that they need at that particular point in their life. And one of the hot topics, you know, going around at the moment is if there's a cover of a book that might be written for boys and girls, but the cover of the book might have a pastel-y colour, like might be a bit purple or pink, but, you know, parents are saying, well, that book's just for girls, you know, or vice versa. If there's a book with a bit of a blue cover or just a male character on the front, that's just for boys. No, that's not the case. And you know what? Even if it is... A book that is designed or written for boys or for girls, let your child read it no matter what it is. 100%. Because it shouldn't make any difference. Your child is going to fall in love with whatever authors and illustrators they want to fall in love with, which might be totally different to the authors and illustrators that you grew up with or the ones that you like. Oh, totally, totally. Now, we've talked a little bit about school visits and you've done a gazillion of them over the years. What are the big takeaways for kids when you do those visits? What do you think would be the top, I don't know, one or two takeaways for the kids? 
Well, I hope they leave feeling inspired. I hope that I get a lot of emails afterwards and I get, you know, colouring sheets where mum and dad have scanned it into me and sent it to me. So I know that there are a lot that do go away and go on with it, which is wonderful. I see when I've run clubs at schools where I go in, you know, once a fortnight and we have the same kids coming into the classes. Slowly those numbers will grow because they're talking about around the playground. And it's just allowing them to have that space that is theirs and they can do whatever they want and knowing that they're in charge and they're not being dictated to by an adult, whether it be someone at home or someone in a library or someone at school, they can do whatever they want in the story. They can create whatever they want. It's just total freedom. And once they realise that, it's like it kind of unlocks something in there. It just, you know, you see the light from their faces that, you know, this is something that, wow, okay, I don't have to do that or I don't have to write about that. I'm going to change it to this and I'm going to do that. So that's, I think, the takeaway is that they're in charge. Love it. Love it. Can you share just one of your writing secrets with us? Is that allowed? Yeah, of course. Look, I think I've really touched on it while we've been talking is the fact that kids, you should be in charge. Adults in charge of the stories too, but adults, when they're writing, they need to write for their reading the book off the shelf necessarily, get into your character's head, get into your character's voice. And the reader will see that. They'll come across that. They'll learn that from the story. It's about entertaining and not preaching. There are so many books out there at the moment and have been for a while that are trying to teach kids lessons. Kids have enough lessons from school, from parents. Let them be kids. Let them enjoy, you know, the adventure, the story. Let them be kids. Don't preach. Never preach to kids in books. Yeah. And look what everyone gets out of a book is so different, isn't it? It's so individual. Absolutely. I've just recently, when we were back in COVID lockdown, I remembered a book when I was young and it was, I've forgotten the name, Pepito the the donkey, the the naughty donkey or something like that. It was a scratch and sniff book. Oh, cool. I remembered it from my childhood and I actually tracked down a copy of it and bought it and got it. The scratch and sniff is gone. But I've read it so many times since I got that book. And it was just a book that I loved when I was a child. And I think those sorts of things, I remember smelling, you can actually scratch the little coffee beans and you could smell the, the fresh coffee and the cut grass. I love the smell of fresh cut grass. And that is in this book. And there are things that I love today, but I think they came from, you know, that book. So A book can take us, you know, stories can take us absolutely anywhere. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life, whether it's good or bad, you can escape into stories and you can be different characters. And I just love books and stories. Can you tell? Yeah, I can. I'm with you. We're on the same camp there, Georgie. Totally, totally. And I guess, you know, that's what led you to to do all the stuff that you do do with Creative Kids Tales and expanding all your services. So I'd love to know, a little bit about that because you have a large number of aspiring writers that you know do take part of many of the things that Creative Kids Tales offers. But besides being published, what is it that aspiring writers are wanting most from you and from Creative Kids Tales? It's interesting over the years I've seen different authors and illustrators come through and the authors of today want, want it all right now. And they want to kind of jump the steps that they need to do to invest in their future for long term. 
And that's why I started the Invest the Right Way course, because it's not about teaching people how to write. There are plenty of courses out there that can teach people how to write. My course covers everything else that they're going to need for their journey to publication. And even when they're published, there's a lot of information I have in there about school visits, how to secure school visits, grants and residencies. There's so much information that I run through in that course, which everyone needs and they need to spend. I spent hundreds of hours learning all those things. So I think that would be my response to what you just asked me. Yeah, well, it goes far beyond as the written word. Exactly. I remember at some point you saying, once you get published, so that's all obviously very exciting, but then once one of your books is published, that's when like the real work starts. And there is so much to learn, like exactly. heaps. I was doing the author shelf and I remember I just interviewed Jackie Harvey and I said, you know, if you know that sigh and let that air out. And she said, no, that's when the hard work begins. And I thought, oh, really? So I haven't made it then. That's when the hard work begins. And it absolutely does. I start off when I do my invest the right way. I, I tell people, you've been investing in your writing from the first time you picked up a pencil. Everything you've done from then to now, you've been investing in your writing future. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you had one tip that you had to give, and I know you've got heaps, but what would be your top tip for an aspiring author? I don't want to, and I do call people authors rather than writers. I like to do that. I think, and I don't want to plug it, but invest. That's what you need to do because it is so much more about just writing. You cannot just pick up a pencil, write, or pick up a pen or sit at your computer, type out a story and have it published. Very, very rarely does that happen. You need to, publishers want to have a relationship with you. They want to build long-term. They want to invest in you as an author or an illustrator. They don't want just, you know, a one-hit wonder book because it's thousands of dollars to publish people in this industry. So they want to have a long-term relationship. So get to know your publishers, get to know where story is going to fit in, get to know what you need to do, how you need to get out there to schools, all the things that you need to do to make your journey an easier one. And, you know, I tell people all the time, it's the most gut-wrenching, exhilarating roller coaster ride that you will go on, but it is fantastic. And once you are in this industry, you'll never want to leave it. Yep. I hear you. I agree. Absolutely. So Georgie, this question would come up a lot, no doubt. And this is the question of self-publishing versus traditional publishing. What's your view, if you have one, or advice on this when someone presents that one to you? I do. Look, many years ago, self-publishing was, you know, only talked about behind closed doors. It was, you know, you don't talk about that. It's, you know, dirty words. You don't say that. Whereas now, I think because back then, and today still as well, anyone can publish a book. If you've had it assessed properly, if you've had it edited, if you've done the hard work, and had all the things done that you need to do rather than just typing it out on the computer and then hitting send and self-publishing it, you know, through whatever medium that you self-publish it, then there is no reason that your book can't stand alongside those that have come through a traditional publisher. And in a lot of respects, when you self-publish, you actually have more control over your book and your title as well. If you have the means to market it and promote it, if you've got a wide audience, then I say go for it. But you need to make sure that you have done all your homework first. 
You've made that book the best it can be before you want to get it out there on the shelf because once it's out there, it's too late. That's it. Do your work. Do the groundwork. It's exactly. worth it. It is worth it. Now, you mentioned Lulu. That was your first publication, but you have others. Can you give us a brief snapshot on the others, Georgie? And if you want, like you've kind of hinted about something to do with a spider story maybe coming up, but let us know what might be on the cards for you in the future. Well, Clover's Big Ideas is, was my second picture book baby. And that idea came from years ago, I was suffering from a lot of headaches and I went and had a brain scan. And the doctor said to me, oh, you've got a smaller sized brain than somebody for your age. And I straight away, that's fine. I have big ideas. And Clover's Big Ideas came from that. Clover is the smallest lamb on the farm and she's teased by all the other lambs. And even though she's small, she has big ideas. And she tries to share that with these little lambs that are teasing her, but they don't want a bar of it. And when one of the naughtiest lambs gets in trouble with the bull that's on the farm, it's up to Clover to come up with her big ideas to help save that naughty lamb. And it's also, you know, about, you know, looks can be deceiving because dear little Clover is actually good friends with the bull on the farm. So they both come up with a way to help save the naughty lamb. And the rest you'll have to read. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you. But I think my latest picture book, In the Shadow of an Elephant, is the one that is closest to my heart. And that one has done extremely well. It was shortlisted in the International Book Awards. It was on the Speech Pathology as well. You have also had some success with the Speech Pathology Awards. And the Society of Women's Writers, it's also been shortlisted as well. So I was very excited about that. In the Shadow of an Elephant is my grief story, and I wrote that story. It's a picture book, I would say, for older children up to the age of 10. It is a book. I wrote that story after I lost my mum to dementia. She'd been suffering for many years, and I wanted to share a story that covered, that talked about death, but was mainly about celebrating life. After a discussion with a publisher who I'd seen at a writing conference a few months after mum had died, I hadn't really been in the right headspace to write anything. I went away with the conversation I had with her, which was, you know, just next time you write something, I want to see what you write. And I went home a few months, maybe a month or so after that conversation. It stuck with me for some reason. I started researching elephants. I don't know why. I mean, I love elephants, but I've never been particularly drawn to them in the past. I started researching elephants and I came across this little elephant called Luolani, who was actually rescued many years ago. They found her, so she was four months old. They believe she was four months old when they found her. She witnessed her mother being poached and she was the most traumatised little elephant that they had ever come across, the rescue service had ever come across. And there's a beautiful four-minute documentary on BBC. You can see it on YouTube. And it is, she, there was a picture of her where she was facing all these bushes and she had this little blanket over her and she was just swaying to looking into the bushes she didn't want to mix with the other elephants. The other elephants are, you know, playing and running around together. When they're taken into the wildlife sanctuary, they're given a keeper. They have a daytime keeper and they have a nighttime keeper. And those keepers stay with the elephants until they're able to mix with the other elephants. They didn't think poor little Luolani would survive. She did. And she ended up becoming the matriarch of the, where she was staying. And I wanted to tell her story. So I used Luolani, but I also, in giving her a keeper, I wanted to give her a keeper's son as well. I wanted someone close to her age, and that was going to be where the story was. 
So it's a story that spans the life of Lulini and the male character in the story, Jabari. And it talks about poaching and it talks about death, but it doesn't talk about in a confrontational way. When, you know, when Lulini passes in the book, it's, you know, she laid down for the last time and, you know, slipped into quiet, that sort of story. And Jabari's with her and just whispers, you know, thank you. So I was really moved by Luolani's story. And actually Luolani is the real Luolani is still alive today. And mm. I follow her journey. And in 2018, when I was researching, because In the Shadow of an Elephant was launched in 2019, I discovered that gorgeous Luolani had had her first calf, a little girl, which she had actually back to the wildlife sanctuary because apparently the elephants do go back and visit their keepers from when they were there. And she, they, she brought back her beautiful little baby girl and the keepers decided the first baby was called Lulu and I am now a foster parent to Lulani through the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. And my youngest daughter also now sponsors one of, fosters one of the baby elephants, Naleku, who is a new little elephant to the home. Oh my gosh. That's like a heartwarming, touching story laid on top of another heartwarming, touching stories. All these layers, Georgie, just keeps I've got going. goosebumps all over my legs right now. I always get goosebumps when I tell that story. I just love that story and I love that connection. And I'm really happy with the picture book. And, you know, Sandra Severini did the most gorgeous illustrations in it set against, you know, it's predominantly black and white, which is eye-catching as well with the splashes of the African colours in there. So I'm happy and, you know, I don't like picking is the closest to my heart. And yes, I am writing the spider story, but this year I actually have coming out Tortoise's Home, which will be the first story published under CKT Publishing. Oh, wow. That is cool. Tortoise's Home. Tortoise's that is home. so that's, exciting. That story I've actually tested at schools and kids love it. I've been telling it for some time. I decided to put it, turn it into a picture book because... One thing that kids love doing when authors have visits is they like buying the books. I'm aware of, you know, the schools I go into. Sometimes, you know, parents, for whatever reason, might not be able to afford their child to buy a book on that day. So I wanted to create a story and sell a book for around $10 so everyone could go home with something and everyone could have something and have that touch, that feel, that smell, and relate it to the visit that I had at the school. So that was my goal, to create a picture book I could and sell cost-efficiently for every parent. That is awesome. Well done. Tortoise's Home. So how would someone get Tortoise's Home? Well, they will be able to buy it from my website, georgiedonahay.com.au, and there'll also be a shop tied up with the new Creative Kids Tales as well. So exciting things to look for. Oh, look, there's heaps, Georgia, and you've shared so many amazing stories, which I'm not surprised at at all, being an author. Thank you for sharing all your stories. Thank you. And also, as you kind of mentioned right at the start, all the wonderful services that you provide through Creative Kids Tales, and you're adding to that. And so if anyone is keen to see, I'd be surprised if you're going to have any seats left, to be honest, because the festival's like around the corner. But... Are you looking at people, can they just look that up through Creative Kids Tales or going to your Georgie Donahay site? What's the best way to look at all of that? Yeah, look, they can find that information on the Creative Kids Tales website. There's also the Creative Kids Tales Facebook group as well, which we have lots of information about all the speakers that will be on at the festival and, you know, ticket information. We've also got 
you can book in with a publisher and have your manuscript assessed. We've also got a number of workshops that are going to be running as well. And as I said, don't worry if things change with, you know, restrictions back in. It's going to be online or it's going to be in person. It's happening and we've got plan A and we've got plan B as well. So don't worry. If you are an aspiring children's author or you're published, you won't want to miss this festival. It's going to be massive. I am looking forward to it. Georgie, thank you so much for all the work that you do. It is absolutely inspiring and also very inspirational to the kids out there who you visit pretty much tirelessly every year, as well as your school holiday workshops. So I really admire all the work that you do and the positive impact that you have for kids, for writers, for authors, for illustrators, etc. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much, Sonia. And thank you for having me with your Chat About Children audience today. If anyone wants to reach out to me, has any author questions, or if kids have questions, please get in touch with me through my website. I just love answering questions and I'm happy to help you on your journey as well. So do get in touch with me. Thank you so much, Georgie, for joining Chat About Children. Thanks for having me, Sonia. A wonderful chat there with a the talented children's author, Georgie Donahay. Please do remember to leave a rating and a review for the Chat About Children podcast from your favorite podcast player. And remember to share this episode with family, friends, and with colleagues who you know will benefit. Thank you so much for listening today. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestelich, www.chataboutchildren.com.